Okay, good morning, and our scripture lesson this morning is from Exodus 14, from 11 to 31. You know, we just sang that song, No Longer Slaves, I'm No Longer a Slave to Fear, I Am a Child of God. So may you have a song in your heart as we read this great story. This great story is our story, personally and collectively. So I'm going to start uh, just a line before verse 11. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And then the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved out and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was with the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea land dry and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went, went into the midst of the sea on dry ground and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. 
But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. The word of God. Anna asked, can Jesus really eradicate shame? She said, I'm a a committed follower of Jesus, but I have BDD. If you don't know what that is, that's a a body dysmorphic uh, disorder. It's a shame, she says, with a capital S, and it drives someone deeper into the self. She says, "I, I want to share my shame with others, but I dare not take the chance of being rejected again. With BDD, I cannot face myself in the mirror. I don't have the strength, and God knows this. In heaven, I will be made whole. I'm hoping I'm included in the category of those who are saved, but don't think that they are. Maybe you remember Adolf Merkel, who uh, was in the top 100 richest people in the world in 2007. They estimated that he had more than $12 billion to his name. 2008, the recession hit, and he lost half his uh, net worth. Now, that wouldn't have changed anything about the way in which he lived his life. I mean, if you still have uh, $6 billion, you're doing pretty well. But he wasn't in the top 100 anymore. And so in January 2009, he walked out the front door of his house and he stopped and stepped right in front of a train. The shame of losing rank, the self-loathing that he felt, the despair that led to the self-destruction. His final note to his family simply said, I'm sorry. Sarah is a high school student and she asked, can I be honest with you? I doubt my love for Jesus. I sometimes think I really don't love him at all. I wonder if I'm just playing a game at church, going through the motions because I enjoy being around Christians. Sometimes I feel a well-intended fraud. And she says, this terrifies me that I fear being invisible to people, irrelevant to my church and to my friends and family. And that what... I have to offer will be dismissed. I fear that I am an outsider uh, to things I really want to be part of. Me too. Me too, Anna, Adolf, and Sarah. I'm prone to hide my fear and insecurity with words and actions that betray my love for Jesus. I dial up intensity when I feel threatened. I medicate through retail therapy. If you don't know what that is, I'll explain it to you later. (laughs) We are all messed up people and damaged and afraid. Amy Voskamp has this great quote that I've used often. She said, uh, don't be so worried about being messed up because all the best people are. 
we act out in the most odd ways because we're so messed up. And the sooner we admit that to one another, the easier it will be to love each other. The name for this sickness is shame. Scott Souls in his book said that shame is an emotional undercurrent, a low-grade anxiety that nags and needles at the soul. It is a fever without a temperature, a low-grade and ever-present condition that tells us we are less than, smaller than, and other than we ought to be. The truth is, the older I get, and it seems that I'm getting older, the more convinced I am that everyone without exception is dealing with shame and guilt and fear. It has been said, be kind to others because everyone you meet is fighting a hidden battle. What if there's a way to be free? What if our secret battle with shame could finally end? What if there was no longer a need to hide our true selves from one another? What if there was a way to not be afraid? My greatest joy as a preacher is I get to tell people that there is a path to freedom, that it does exist. Jesus has lifted the shame off of us and placed it on himself on the cross and nailed it there. We are free from having to rewrite our stories because the old ones are so filled with so many regrets. The story of redemption is truly sufficient as our story. This morning, the crossing that we are looking at that was read to you when Paul Drew read is about a part of a bigger story or a paradigm as a way to think of it. That is, Exodus gives us a paradigm of redemption. That it is a story that has four chapters in it. And we've, we've already gone through one chapter and we're at the second chapter. The first chapter was slavery. And so their physical slavery only pointed to spiritual slavery which in, is far worse, far more insidious and destructive. But the second chapter, the one that we're looking today is deliverance, that slavery doesn't have to be our story. It can be part of our story, but it doesn't have to be the story, and it certainly doesn't have to be the end of the story. Next week, we pick up the third chapter because after they cross the Red Sea, they go into the wilderness. And the wilderness is our story of freedom. But it is also mixed with the continued problems of what we once were conflicting with who we now are. And that takes for them 40 years and for us a lifetime depending on when you came to the Lord. And then the end of the book gives hints of the end, the promised land, which is the picture that one day the struggle will completely be gone 
and we will be fully free to serve. And so this morning, I, I just want to look at this second chapter, this idea of deliverance in, in three parts of it. And part of it is you can't really appreciate the deliverance until you understand, until we get a full grasp. And I assume every Sunday there are people here who have not heard the story that Exodus tells. And so a little bit of recapping just slavery, where these people and where we come from. You might be thinking, well, I've never been a slave. If you understand slavery, then you might not be able to say that. To bring you up to speed, Pharaoh at this point has allowed the Jewish slaves to go free. They have experienced 10 plagues on all of the gods of Egypt. And Pharaoh can't counter them. So eventually after every firstborn child and every firstborn of the beast of all perished in one night, he finally relents and says, go, I am done with you. He's letting them go, not so much because he's merciful or gracious, but simply he wants the pain to stop himself. So more inward than outward. And they've arrived at the Red Sea. They've arrived at the sea. They've, they've marched from the cities. About, they estimate, somewhere between one and a half and two million people have come with Moses and they've gotten to the sea and they can't cross it. It's too deep and too broad and too great. And they were scared to death of the sea. And that's why they turn to Moses and have that conversation. But meanwhile, Pharaoh back in the palace has had a change of heart. What am I doing? And so he sends the greatest army the world has ever known at that time. And he sends the most deadly weapon in human history up to that point, the chariot, 600 of them. And their job is simply to bring the slaves back or put them in their graves where they are if they won't come back. And now we pick up our story in verse 11, as Paul read to you, it is because there are no graves in Egypt, can you hear the sarcasm, that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not this, what we said to you in Egypt? Hey, Moses, do you not remember what we said? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And one of the things that you, you need to learn about slavery is that it creates a delusional field about it that you don't even know that you're slaves or that it is that bad. They say to Moses, we didn't want to leave. We were just fine there. What was all of that crying about that we looked at prior to chapter 12? What was all the crying out to God, deliver us? We we were slaves for 400 years and it says that God saw them and heard them and knew them, heard their cries. They were in denial about just how bad it really was. You remember the genocide that Moses had, I mean, that Pharaoh had on the Jews to control the numbers of people. This wasn't a, a benign uh, a servitude. This was a, a dehumanizing lack of image of God's slavery. 
no dignity of man. They had forgotten not just how bad it was, but how good God is. They'd forgotten that just prior to coming to this immovable force called the sea, that God moved the immovable Pharaoh. They had forgotten and doubted that God who once was faithful. Can you, can you get your minds around the fact that somehow they couldn't believe that a God who brought the death of every firstborn in Egypt couldn't do something about the sea? But that's what slavery does. It creates a delusional field, a denial that we can't see and can't know. And in reality, they were free, but they really weren't free yet. Deliverance has not yet truly happened for them. They want a deliverance and they're not on the other side of the sea. They're still slaves. Yes, physically they're free from the Egyptians' servitude, but they are still in fear of the Egyptians. See, you can be free physically, but not truly free. The Bible recognizes this that you're either a slave to God or you're a slave to something else. We tend to forget that humans are creatures. We are not gods. And because of that, we were created to serve the creator. And because of that, when we don't serve him, we still are serving someone or something. We are truly never our own. And if you remember the Ten Commandments ruined Exodus uh, for us because Charlton Heston uh, quotes the directors and the writers give him a line that Moses never says. Charlton Heston, you can get it on Netflix and, and he'll say, Pharaoh, let my people go. And that's not the quote. It's not let my people go, it's let my people go so that they can serve me. You see, we were created as all creatures to bring glory and honor and service to our God. And when we're not doing that with him, we're doing that with someone else or something else. And you and I need to be saved, but we need to be saved from not serving God because we will serve somebody and it will destroy us if it's not God, if we're not delivered from it. Using the great theologian Rocky Balboa, it took six of his movies before we got the plot. He says in the first one, I just want to go the distance. And for those of you who don't box, that's 15 rounds. Then I know I'm not a bum. Rocky is saying that you and I need to be delivered from bumness. We need to be saved from our need to not be a bum. And all that we do to prevent that from ever happening in our lives. Or maybe you like Oliver Twist better. It's got a character named Nancy Sykes who does this well. When she stays with an abusive partner, Nancy says that I can't live without Bill. Without Bill, I have absolutely nothing. 
you and I need to be uh, saved from billness. Some men in today's world are enslaved to non-commitment in hopes of finding true freedom. And you and I need to be saved from non-commitment. The insidiousness of slavery, and this is the point before we have to move on, is that it makes you like it and want it. When all of the evidence is contrary to it. Which brings us to the second part of this deliverance is that it's decisive. It's a decisive victory over what has enslaved us. Look again at verse 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, watch for the the, the temporal here. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you tomorrow, next week, next year, next lifetime, today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you will have only to be silent. The Israelites were under a death sentence on this side of the sea. If they stayed, they would either die a slow death and slavery in Egypt, or they'd die a quick death there at the beach. But they were on a death sentence, and they were going to move. Moses was going to move them from death to life by crossing the sea. This is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 5 when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Now he's going to define eternal life. He does not come into judgment. The reason is because Jesus took that judgment. But it has passed from death to life. In every other religion in the world, it's a progressive conversion. What is called an enlightenment. But not with Christianity. It is a decisive soul act of God for us. Christianity is about a decisive change in status. That's why Paul will say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say that there won't be in the future, but in the present. Those are present tense. It's what the hymn writer means when he says, I hear the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. Hear the good news of the gospel. Jehovah findeth none. It is salvation apart from obeying the law. God does not require your obedience for his salvation. If he did, no one would be saved. Because we started with everyone being messed up. Jesus obeyed for us. And we receive that by faith, not work. It's also a salvation apart from the quality of our faith. I don't know how many times I heard somebody say, if you just believe enough. And it's not about the quality of your faith. It is about the quality of the object of your faith. It is Jesus who saves. Christianity is not about trying to be anything It is about a decisive, irrevocable act that changes your status from slave to his child. 
It is solely because of that change status does everything else begin to change about us. When we invert those, when we revert those, change those, when we put the work so that our status would change, that's when everything falls apart. And we'll look at that next week. But let me just end with this, how counterintuitive this redemption is. That is, it's not how we would think. Listen in verses, the end of our chapter, end of our passage, verse 28. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Can't imagine that picture. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Moses leads them on the dry ground and then the waters cave in and cover them up. You can imagine the scene, how your faith and your would have grown and your fear would have diminished as you took every step and the walls stayed up. And then as you get to the other side and you look back and the walls begin to come in as those armies that were pursuing you are now engulfed and lost. In fact, this is how Jude will describe this as a judgment of God being baptized into death. And so Moses led them, but Moses will lead them to the other side and we still have 40 more years of wilderness. And they need, like we need, a permanent deliverance. We don't need to just get them to the other side of the sea we needed to get to the other side, period. And so Moses points to Jesus, who is the ultimate redeemer. When Jesus let himself be stripped naked, spat upon, taunted, rejected, this is the upside-down, counterintuitive gospel. He was made nothing on the cross. When Jesus, the perfect son of God, who had nothing to be ashamed of, surrendered to the ruthless, uh, a relentless shaming, and bullying, he ended our shame and stripped shame of its power in our lives. Paul agrees with you. He says, he who was wealthy became poor for our sakes, that though through his poverty, we might become what? Wealthy. And this kind of wealth in Christ is different than money and jewels and land and houses. This kind of wealth of Jesus is a shame-killing wealth. It is an acceptance that Anna desired. It is a validation that the money could not give billionaires. It is the security Sarah longed to have. It is the wealth that calls us out of hiding. And when we were made wealthy in Jesus, we lose the need to be wealthy in this life. Or thin, or intelligent, or networked, or famous or anything that we have erroneously clung to for dear life. Just three quick applications, and then we'll go to the Lord's Supper. The first one is just a question. Have you crossed over? Have you crossed over? Are you ashamed? Does guilt haunt you today? 
Do you feel small, insignificant, irrelevant, ignored? God sees you. He hears you. He knows you. You can have this wealth if you trust in what Jesus has done for you. We believe and the scriptures teach that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the only requirement is that you see your need for a definitive, decisive deliverance by God. Secondly, maybe you've crossed over already, but the old masters are calling to you from the other side of the sea. The truth is you can be free, but still live as a slave. We're going to find that out next week. Is the accuser the loudest voice you hear today? That's why Paul says there is therefore what? Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God rejoices over you with loud singing. God is not mumbling in heaven a song about you. Is this the story you tell yourself? Is this the story you believe? The last application, and it's really an implication, is that Exodus is a call for us to help others to escape slavery too. An implication of our own deliverance is to seek the deliverance of others who are in bondage, to tell them this counterintuitive, redemptive story. It doesn't require you to argue them. It doesn't require you to belittle them or to shame them into the kingdom, but simply tell them of what God has done for us. Everyone we know has a quiet battle they wage. And you and I have the privilege to tell them that there is a way for the battle to end. Will you show someone today? Will you tell someone today? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this powerful picture of our redemption where you have decisively irrevocably delivered us from death to life. And we pray as we come to the Lord's Supper and rehearse the gospel again with tasting and touching and smelling. Father, that we might eat and drink this story into our hearts that we might believe it. And because of that change status, it changes everything about our lives. That we have been set free to serve you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.